Tonight, we take a look at the new Hulu original reboot. Then we continue our Star Trek Deep Space Nine discussion. And after that, we will conclude with a special memorial tribute to Louise Fletcher. All this coming up right now on The Writer Brothers. And welcome back to your Tuesday night home this week for Hulu's original reboot, and of course, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am joined by Mr. Pollo Zapatos, and of course, Corion, Witch in Residence. Gentlemen, how are you doing this fine Tuesday evening? Doing awesome. And uh, we would, of course, like to just take a real quick second, quick shout out, of course. Our thoughts and prayers are with the uh, the Cuban people that recently suffered Hurricane Ian. And, of course, uh, a lot of my friends and family that are going through the storm as it uh, kind of rushes alongside Key West and then uh, is sadly likely to go impact Tampa as a category. So uh, we do we are thinking of you guys a lot. And, uh, well, if you're able to tune in and escape the storm for a couple hours, we'd love to have you for the discussion. All right, enough reality for a bit. Let's go ahead and dive into what we're here for, and that is to escape from reality, and that is to discuss the uh, the new uh, Hulu original sitcom within a sitcom reboot. Corion, you just have this fresh on your brain. Yeah. Um, so why don't you go ahead and start it off? Uh, we're just kind of doing an overall summary. We're not. We, we realize with comedy. We learned our lesson with what we do in the shadows. We can kind of touch on stuff a little bit, a bit of an overview, and we'll probably get back to this show at a later time. But we're going to go ahead and, and we're going to cover it because I think four episodes are actually out now. I watched all four. I don't know how many you guys got through, but whatever number was. Uh, I just got through the first one so far. Okay. But the basic premise is, I mean, we've all seen Hollywood reboot everything imaginable. And this show is taking us through a comedic look at what one of those reboots would look like. Um, the show they Not seem to, to be... Not to mention that it actually listed all of the current reboots. Well, ex- exactly. Um, that Hulu the... exec meeting was like... I-, I was I had to stop and, and think because I'm just like... Uh, my brain wants to fail right now. Well, the, the <laughs> thing of it is, I've been in that meeting. I've yeah. been in that Hulu exec meeting. So I know exact. I can say with, with pure honesty that was played almost completely straight. It's just so farcical that you think it wouldn't be real life, but I assure you it is. Um, but yeah, so the basic premise is we're, we're being taken through the reboot of a family ties step-by-step style um, show that they're attempting to reboot. The woman that they've brought in to run the show wants it to be more, have a little bit more comedy, but be a little grittier, a little realer. Um, we do have definitely to, have. We do have to oh. interrupt. Uh, we do have fan mail from Arendi. It says, escaping reality, what is real? How do you define real? You're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Then real is simply electric signals interpreted by your brain. For too long, didn't read. I think, therefore, I am. My response to that would be, dude, remember the song Time Killer. What's reality compared to me? <laughs> 
But anyway. Well, aren't we just full of ourselves all of a sudden? Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, let's get back onto Earth. Reality is what's real, and what's fake isn't real. But reality is, is that we had fall where John and I live, and then it, it, well, now we're back to summertime, which has been the pattern all year, because in April, we went back to February, and, and now here we are about literally on the dawn of Wait, October. Didn't it snow in May? I think it did. Yeah. Yeah. On the yeah. dawn of October, it's 90 degrees outside. Ugh. Yeah, it's like Mai Tai season out there. Yeah. Yeah. At, at any rate, um, yeah, so the 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 new showrunner wants to take it in kind of a darker, more gritty, more realistic kind of approach. And they find out that the rights holder wants to take it in the original campy style setup. And we then find out near the end of the first episode that it turns out that the sh- that the original showrunner and the new showrunner are related. So this this one takes a lot of it, it really takes it to task on you know the style of diva actor and actresses um, on the nonsense that can happen in the background of a show and the producers who simultaneously want to be edgy but don't want to dare take a risk for fear of insulting and screwing up fans. So that kind of weird dichotomy of massive egos and general insane hijinks that you only get from creative people uh, are are played to comedic effect throughout this entire series. I gotta say, um, having experience the the edges of what Hollywood tends to look like and behave like and, and the political nonsense that goes along in the background. Yeah, th- this this feels like, you know, some dude like Cameron is going to laugh, watch this and be like, yeah, this is just a slice of life. Um, <laughs> right. Um, you know, dude like me sits there going like, I think I've worked with those actors. And, you know, um, especially with like Johnny Knox. Man, Johnny Knoxville is, is, you know, he he's every terrible, like every actor who winds up letting the money go to their head. The, uh, I believe it's Jordan Peele, I want to say. Um, oh, no, Keegan-Michael yeah. Key. Or, no, Keegan-Michael Key. My apologies, Keegan-Michael Key. Yo, man, that dude is every, pre- like, pretentious actor ever to exist. Um, we have the fantastic little starlet. Um, who who managed to to score a a uh, unique marriage, um, which I'm sure is trying to be a play on Meghan Markle, and then we have um, a kid who was a child star who is starting to realize that they are no longer cool enough to be a child star, and no. this one I never was. It's it an out. adult that's still playing a child star. Yeah, fair, He's fair still, enough. Like, like he full on owns that he's still a child star. He's just not realizing that he's a twenty four year old child star. Yeah, I, I like your, I like the way you put it. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I mean the shenanigans and the hijinks that we get up to, even in the first episode. Uh, honestly, I mean, you know, the kind of behaviors that you randomly find inside uh, trailer actors' trailers are one hundred percent there. And just the craziness and nonsense about it. 
it it got me. I was like, okay, yep, this is uh, this is worth my uh, worth my eyeballs for at least an hour or two. So I, yeah. I can't wait to see where this goes. I'm yeah. so well, happy real quick, how close real, it is. Real quick, Arendi oh, yeah. writes in, am I right assuming you guys haven't seen The Matrix in a while? I had a feeling you were quoting a movie. I just, it didn't click in my head didn't right click, away. But, no. but no, it's, just, it's still, a. It, that's one of those quotes from that movie, though, that, that really transcends the film itself and is definitely something okay, to ponder. But that's only depending on how much influence we put on those electrical signals the worlds we've created in our brain and then whether or not our eyes are lying to us and speaking of worlds created in our brain what's your take on uh reboot before we get off on a tangent well yeah so for reboot the biggest thing to me is like i'm so happy that it's not curb your enthusiasm but it's just as funny right out the gate i felt like i was walking into season seven of curb like Whereas, like, Curb is all about Larry David and his hijinks throughout life, and it's hilarious. This is a whole thing about just the realities of working in the sitcom world and in Hollywood, and it's still, like, Curb Your Enthusiasm kind of funny. And I think that that's such a new thing to, like, to just walk into. And also, like, especially in today's time, like, normal, like, Curb Your Enthusiasm is on like season 12 and it wasn't until season 12 that I went back to season 7 and rewatched it all to catch up like reboot opened strong and now I'm mad that there's nothing to go back to and like binge in like binge in that's, that's what I love about this show is like for the first time in my life that I can think of there's an actually good sitcom that's brand new with all of its own realities going on well there there are i can actually uh you can go back with this show sort of um you could check out uh steven levitin's other works i think that's how you say it look that's what it looked like i thought it was sounds like it. for the longest time and then i realized there's no h or i or a or n anyway uh but yeah so you could check out his other stuff because he, he did uh create modern family and he also did another show way back in the 90s oh. called just shoot me which i just shoot me i enjoy okay that's wild because i've already binged modern family and that's awesome because like that's modern family was one of those ones that it took me a while to finally like sit down and watch because growing up watching it i was like this show is dumb and it is to a kid but to every parent and every person who has friends that are parents it's hilarious yeah to me it, it To me, it felt like it was trying to borrow too much from Malcolm in the Middle and uh, The Office at first. But then when I gave at it some... At that time, yeah. Yeah. But when I gave it some chance later on, I was like, all right, this, has, this show has its moments. And it even has... And this is the other thing I do appreciate about this show is it does get pretty raunchy. It gets pretty degenerate. But it also counterpunches in the same manner with its wholesome values. And so if it's reaching a certain audience and, and trying to teach them some good things, then I think it's it's doing a pretty okay job. I do yeah, wish. The, I do. That I thought was actually one of the cool things is that it really shows the experience of writers. Like, mm-hmm. they walk into those rooms expecting political correctness because that's what everybody says about hollywood (laughs) it turns out that no that's just what the media the hollywood's media sells that that's what hollywood is doing internally but that 
like that's what i like about this show it really does feel like an actual like introspection into the hollywood atmosphere while also still being a comedy yeah like the the actors the the characters of the actors that we have in the show I feel like you should definitely do as a short, they should have done as a short, like, these are the five people you'll meet in Hollywood, right? And just showed it off, because I feel like that would have been perfect. Um, you know, we, we've seen all of these characters. We've met people who have, um, you know, the, the um, you know, the, the rumors of what they're like in real life play out exactly like this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's part of the reason why these characters work so well. I mean, uh, I don't know anything about Johnny Knoxville personally, um, but uh, H. Marie keeps telling me that, that, that uh, Johnny Knoxville is playing Johnny Knoxville. Yes. <laughs> himself, which I'm like, there, there's moments of his where I'm like, yeah, I relate to that. And then he goes and does something else. I'm like, I don't want to relate to that. Um <laughs> I think you know which one I'm talking about. It's not about. that you don't relate well, to no, it. It's the, that you don't the, want to that's, relate yeah, to that's it. Yeah, that's what I meant. I don't want to. The funniest thing about that whole interaction that you're talking about is, aren't they the same age? So it's not, if anything, like that's the relationship he wanted to luck into. I don't want to ruin it for you, Corion, but like. Oh, how many episodes I, did like, you get me, through, Corion? I got through the the first one. Oh, um, I just wanted to be super fresh for it. But do, guys, do not worry. Oh. Do not worry about it at all, because as soon as this stream is over, that's what I'm going to be binging tonight. So yeah. Don't, don't uh, worry. So so yeah. Then you got something great to look. Through. The whole writers' room episode. So there, the, I think it's the second the episode. The whole episode was talking about one. that like can't get out of scene A, and the whole time so, the writers yeah. never get out of scene A. So so. So, so what happens is Coriotis is they have is uh, Hannah has a bunch of new writers, of course, because she's the new, you know, showrunner. Yeah. And dad brings in all of his old school guys. And so the after old school, meeting all the new ones, right after dad meeting all tries the new to ones. do it with the new ones. And he's like, all right. And at lunch, he goes and grabs new ones, goes against the his old buddies. And they're like raunchy, offensive, politically incorrect. And so there's a big clash between the writers until they find something to unite on and it's a great it's a really great message to send to people like this guys it's not about agreeing with everything and not being offended all the time it's about finding that common ground and this show that's what really won me over was that episode honestly that's the crazy thing is this show has been doing a lot of things that i i've noticed like dramas and action movies are getting really into which is like taking characters to the full like who are they as a person what are their character feelings character like synopsis and now suddenly like reboot is doing that from the comedic standpoint like these people's lives are in no way perfect just like everybody else's but each one of them is not just a paper cut of a nut like of a trope like we don't have the fool, we don't have the jock, we don't have the uh, this nerd. We just have four actors that started at different points in their lives, and while they were in the industry, it chewed them out and spit out meet the four people. And this is how they're all like they have 
deep psychological issues. They have deep emotional instability issues, commitment issues, forbidden love issues. Like, yeah, they're they're, they're actors. Them. I mean, well, no, yeah, <laughs> but but also like they're actors that are actually acting these feelings out, not in a corny way, not in a let's get this resolved by the end of the episode, and I'm not a narcissist anymore, like there's this whole playing on the the psychological failures of being a human and then not to mention the like like the whole premise of it being a dad and daughter reboot and it, it, i want to say it was at the end of the first episode you learned that the whole show was based on the dad yeah and his life and so the dig the big dark secret is that like she was the daughter that was like left behind the whole time and that is like so messed up if we're watching this in like gone girl terms like that's a great thriller i did not expect that ending but in this it was hilarious i don't feel bad for her even though i do feel bad for her like i'm still laughing at her struggle and her suffering but also like i'm not emotionally bent up about laughing at her yeah i'm 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 gleefully enjoying her suffering which is the sign of a good comedy right and and that keeps building and that's the scene that parker's describing that's like the best part is because like we can still laugh at our sorrow Mm -hmm. and still be suffering like we can be laughing while mid-suffering and that juxtaposition makes the like the laughter even better like for some reason oh, yeah. it does lower the suffering but it also makes it funnier the worse it sucks absolutely so yeah i mean honestly um i really enjoyed it i don't think I, I definitely think after the first episode this is not necessarily um a show i would say is for everyone like it it, it earns its you know DMA for sure yeah it, it earns its its mature audience absolutely um, you know, that being said, I appreciate a good mature audience comedy every once in a while. Uh, I feel like MA is the perfect spot for a comedy. Um, every once in a while, just because you need to have that freedom to be able to take it to raunchy to sometimes blue places for the gag. As, as much as yeah. I love the show Scrubs, I, I think that, that, it should have that the, uh, the all right. So Scrubs would have been a good show if they had been allowed an MA rating. It, it, well, they need that's just a it, radio though. edit version and a non-edit version. And yeah, that's and Hulu has an opportunity like... to do exactly that right now, and I really think they should because th- this may come as a shock to some people out there, but um, not everybody Deadpool who's a religious is degenerate. I know. I was kind of shocked too to meet some some non-believing uh, people that didn't care for degeneracy, but they exist. There's a lot of them, and so I do think that if since they have sub and dub versions of anime shows, I think that they could they could definitely reach a wider audience if they say, "Yeah, here's the mature audience version for the ones who you know want to see that," and I'll still probably watch that one admittedly, but here's the grandma friendly tv 14 version that still has all the same hints but you don't have to deal with the swearing you don't have to see stuff that you might not want to see and you still get to enjoy the story 
and I or at think- least not see while your grandma's in the room. <laughs> you know that's the moment that she's gonna walk in too. Um, and 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 I think that that would that wouldn't diminish the quality of the show at all. I think people would would gravitate towards the version of the story they want to watch, and they'd still be able to discuss around the water cooler. Oh yeah, I I like reboot. I personally prefer the TV fourteen version, but the story's still there. The characters are still that the the implications don't go away with a TV fourteen version. But yeah, no. If anything, the only thing that goes out is a few like minutes of funny, like of raunchy funny. Yeah, of like teen comedy funny, right? Like, and yeah, like or just like National that. Lampoon raunchy, like, like right? It's like all the things that you're that I would assume you're cutting out, Parker, are not necessarily Flares, nudity, part of the world building. It. They don't mess with the exposition or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, we should paraphrase that. Of they don't mess with anything. As far as we know right now, they could harken back to something that would be mandatory, but we and we don't know yet. But as it stands right now, yeah, you could totally do a, a video like a TV 14 edit yeah. and an MA edit and release them both and just let, purely let based the audience it on... decide what how much they want to subject yeah. themselves to. All right, Arende writes in. I also like the CGI animated version of Reboot as a kid. Yeah, me too. Uh, been yeah, years it, since I've seen that show, and that's I, I knew what I when I saw Reboot on there, I was like, wait, really? And then I saw it was not that Reboot. I was like, what, really? So, yeah, I, I, I was half expecting during this whole show for a GameCube to drop down and and the whole thing to change. <laughs> You know, with how meta ridiculous this show gets, I won't put it past them for like I don't know a Halloween episode or an April first uh, gag. Like, like that is something I feel they could like that's do. gonna be like this season finale. Like they're just gonna look into the camera and go, "You all thought this was gonna be the GameCube one." Yeah, yeah, and right. It just closes dark. Or better yet, I want to see. I could see them going. This would be a stretch. Don't get me wrong. This is like out there as an idea but i think what would be hilarious is if they did one episode to the similar vein that they did supernatural when they had the supernatural episode where they end up in the alternate universe on the set of supernatural instead you have them somehow end up in their own real life show you know what i would do because i know the name reboot and everything else Nah, i would have a harken back to one of the original episodes where there was some problem with the with the family's GameCube, and at the end of it, the GameCube gets dropped on one of the actors and knocked unconscious. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, it, it practically writes itself. Well, all the it other actors in. are just staring directly at the camera. Exactly. Yeah. As the writes cube in. hits, you just look over and they're all staring. Warning: Incoming game. Warning, incoming game. There we go. There it is. Yeah, no, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's definitely got an audience in its current form, and I think that people that, that don't mind the, the mature aspects, like the unsaid, that's, the other thing too is I personally like, like, one of the reasons I'm, sorry to mention Lower Decks again, but one of the reasons I like it this season is they decided, even though it streams on Paramount Plus and they can do the TVMA stuff, they ended up censoring the hard swears, and I don't know why, but that somehow makes the show more enjoyable. It's like, well, they didn't actually... They said it, but you didn't hear them say it, but you got the bleep on top of it. 
So I I I don't know. I feel like after um you know, lower decks season 2, uh you know, they've already gone beyond uh having to worry about swears. I know. So it's a little right? weird, like... but I like it. But anyway, you know, lower decks is probably one we could just recap later. I, I know they're going to DS9 this season, so it kind of works out for us, but uh I'll let we'll we'll argue Lower about Dex, that. It's like you said screen. at the at the top of this one for comedy. The best thing about comedy is that it's more meant to just be discussed as to why it brought us joy, not necessarily yeah. that we're looking forward to get our another our next dose. Like yeah, we always want it, but also y'all got any when it more comes, of them let's shows. like explain it. <laughs> yeah, y'all Dude. got any more of them good comedies? The Ryder Brothers y'all does not pay advocate Dave for Chappelle to make another use, Dave Chappelle but, show. Eh, your body, your choice. Yes. But, like yeah, I, so. I don't know. I feel like when it comes to like these comedy shows, it's and reboot. I think is one of my favorite meta analysis that you can do a meta analysis on. Like there's so much about it that's just good in-depth writing as far as like narrowing down each character having all of their own weights and measures but then on top of that being able to address the fact that like yeah we know we're hollywood in a hollywood world making a movie about hollywood world and we know that most of you are going to think this is a circle jerk but watch this and then it's like nope this is a clown car Th- that is exactly what i thought during that writer's room because because i i had to stop and i looked over at h breed i go okay so it's a show it's a fictional show that was eventually on one of hulu's now owned networks so we're, we're we're doing a writer's room inside the hulu writer or inside the hulu exec room about a show that's gonna stream on hulu while watching a show that's streaming on Hulu. Yep. And and yes, it felt like a lot of ego and logo stroking there. And, and I was like, okay, but as it progressed, it, well, it really started to that get was, better. That was actually my favorite thing about it is when they did the list in the episode one, yeah. all of the stuff that they said Hulu had produced, it was all fake names. I know. Yes. They didn't take credit for anything that they've actually produced which to me is like wow way to actually take your ego out of it a little bit you know like because i could have seen that if it was in netflix it would have been like yeah what if we reboot and they're like well we tv adapted the witcher and like just go through their entire list and we'd be like wow way to really make yourselves look good netflix or in this case hulu way to make yourselves look and they didn't They, they named every reboot that is currently active but didn't necessarily go, and these are the ones that Hulu's producing and making yeah. money off. And and I, I don't know, I like that. But I thought the writer's room thing in episode two was so funny in terms of they're talking about all the rules that I've heard in all of my writing classes that I've been taking. And they're doing it exactly like every kid who's ever been to a college writing class would imagine it's supposed to go especially at the beginning of the episode and then by like the middle of the episode they address the fact that they haven't left the writer's room yet and it's like what if we were just stuck in scene a the whole episode 
and then you go, wait a minute, you guys have been stuck in scene A the whole episode. <laughs> oh yeah, look, the, I, that too is just so clever. Yeah, like the guys who are writing this, I'm gonna give them a lot of props because they are taking things to a hilarious meta level that I mean other shows have attempted in the past and just never been able to fully grasp and they they're doing a fantastic job of it they are are reaching that you know like you can tell that whoever wrote this series originally who came up with the concept was just sick and tired of the hollywood industrial complex and decided to go like take a shot at it and it turned into this and it turned out fantastic because he was like, no, I've had enough of this nonsense. I'm pointing it all out. And well, that's the best part is because like you can learn a how the system works because there's actually a lot of like solid teaching points in here. Like the director, rather than taking the time to or not the director, but the dad um, taking the time to like rather than fix any relationships or work with anybody or make it better he just had all of his tricks he's like writers you treat this way actors you treat that way and like as me being somebody who has interest in joining the industry like oh so if i meet a creative showrunner he's probably gonna think he's in control of the entire world around him and knows how to like talk to everybody in a certain way but that doesn't mean he's right like like there's so much of that like we have these tried and true this is how i deal with my job and then we're watching and we're like the daughter's like giving him sound advice like no you should probably talk to the actors and help them out he's like no just give them something shiny i'll just give them something else to do and rather than fixing the problem or addressing the problem he's just like no it's not a problem i'll make it not a problem yeah and oh, and that's oh. that's an important thing to realize yeah, honestly, I need to talk to, uh, I think, uh, you know, guys, if you're out there and, and you're listening, Bug Cameron, we need him to weigh in on this show because he's going to be sitting there watching this whole thing. Like, I want to do a live reaction of him watching this show because so much of it is going to be like, I've been that dude. I've been that dude. You know, I, I, that's not something Wait, so that I'm... that's why he talked to me like that. That's not, yeah. that's not something that I would not turn down for posting on this show either if you make it yeah, happen we, I, I will gladly try to arrange the time and, and make the effort to uh <laughs> to do that because yes i'd love to see his real time reaction to it if we can work it out yeah. if not then you know at least get us some follow-up because yeah he's he's quite a unique insight to oh, the, and, and and honestly like he is the most wonderful human being to talk to he's a deeply spiritual friendly warm caring human being but he's reached he's also reached that point with the hollywood machine i feel like where he just <laughs> he knows it well enough to know all the all the comings and goings of stuff and would probably find this hysterical oh absolutely and, and i mean even just to pick his brain on writing and stuff in general would, would be fun but at the same well, time he because he's such a nice person you know everybody wants cameron true I am going to say, though, that, um, uh, you know, just to plug Cameron, because he's a good friend and he deserves a yeah. little bit of a plug. He does have a Patreon where he does discuss his writing method um, pretty in-depth, de in and it is worth joining his Patreon. So do give him a check out, guys. We'll uh, blast that in the chat here. Because dude is a good friend. He does not get a nearly enough credit 
that as he deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And and from what little interaction I've had, been fortunate enough to have with with Cameron because I mean he is you know, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up the guy's um, hind quarters. Behind. I'm trying to just sound respectful and refer to Cameron. Don't want to swear. Uh, he really is. It's because he's so universally because he is the way he is. He is a popular guy, and he he just you know. He makes time for people when he can, but yep. he's also got, you know, his own mouth to feed and his own, uh, his own. And like six million of. projects on the and go. And so, and yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm great. I mean, I am grateful for the time that I, I have been able to get, and that's not an ass kiss and nor is that, nor am I saying this in the hopes that, oh, please come on the show quicker. No, I, I really mean that Cameron's a genuine guy and I try to be a genuine guy as, as those of you know, on this show. And so when when I meet genuine people, especially that are in the in the Hollywood swamp, I definitely want to give credit to the ones that actually try to make an effort and that actually do be normal people. Not, oh, hey, let's talk about all the stuff I've done. Tell me how great I am. No, (laughs) we don't do that. I don't do that. You guys want to do it. That's your business. But I will never give empty praise like that. I mean, I believe in praise where praise is due. Yes. If somebody has done a fantastic job and comes on the show, I will definitely be the first to say, hey, man, I think you did a fantastic job in this. I may also be the guy that says, but what were you thinking when you were doing that other role? We give honest feedback on this show. We do not hold back. And unless it's like something's, you know, we're not opposed to certain things being told, hey, can you guys drum it up for X, Y, Z? Give us a good reason. We'll hear you out. But ultimately, you come to us, you're coming for the truth, and we're given to you. And if you don't like it, okay. <laughs> but, yeah. well, no, see, I think that's the funny thing, though, is our honest truth isn't also, it's not an attack. We don't, we don't, Absolutely we deliver not. the truth. No. We no. don't, we don't shoot it at you. We don't shove it down your throat. Because, like, our, our biggest goal is to change. Yeah. Unlike the director who's just like, oh, no, the fans will like whatever I give them. And it's like, no, no, we won't. Like, there's a reason why Star Wars is so ingrained in our hearts. And Hawkeye is kind of a fun character in Marvel. Like, the universe itself was written and crafted in such a way that it burned into our hearts. And that's what good writing looks like. That's what good writing is. That's the stuff that Odyssey and Iliad were made of. That's the stuff Shakespeare wrote. And so for... And then you have posers like me. Ah, you did pretty good. I enjoyed the book. Why haven't you bought six million copies so I can buy a new trailer? Because if I buy six million copies, then I will be building my new trailer out of your book. And I don't think you'd enjoy that. It sounds like a win-win here. I mean, (laughs) I just want the money. I don't really care about the fame that much, honestly. (laughs) What's the wind resistance of six million books? (laughs) If someone mistakes, you know, my face for Sam Hyde, I'm not really going to give a shit as long as it's not the FBI. fair. Let's be honest. You'd only be a poser if you were saying that you sold six million books right now. Yeah. Right. By a a bestseller review, even though I've only sold like 10 copies. Exactly. And that see, that's the thing that I think a lot of people like us are, are struggling with these days is like, well, yeah, actually, I'm kind of good at my job. And everybody at your job is like, yeah, yeah, you're good at your job. And then they're like, well, I'm not that good at anything. 
It's like, no, you learn and practice and execute a skill with ex like precision just because it's not everybody's favorite skill to watch on yeah. TV. I mean, it's not this all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, and let's be honest, when it comes to like, you know, people in the business, most of the time our like honest questions are going to be things like when you were performing this role, why did you make the following choice? Because we want to understand it so that we can probably learn from it. Not really a, you know, we, you know, like I, you bring Jar Jar on here. I'm going to ask him about the accent and what the, the decision-making process looked like. Not well, criticizing. I, I just seriously yeah. be like, what was the thought? Like, wh- how did you get there? Right. And, and were you, were you privy to whether or not Jar Jar was supposed to be secretly a Sith Lord? Well, that, that's ultimately the most important question and really the yeah. only one that matters. Also, speaking of somebody who matters, Arendi writes in, The fans will like whatever I make. That's the mentality that gave us such wonderful shows as Rings of Power and STD, referring to Star Trek in Darkness. Or no, wait, sorry, Discovery. One well, of those or is, is that... a personal guilty pleasure of mine that I actually absolutely enjoy for my own enjoyment, knowing full well it's a popcorn flick. The other is I was nervous he was going to say scared to death by bad magic productions over yeah, No, STD uh, is this is the slang for discovery the because STD. Or, or or the thing bad. that you need penicillin for both actually really you need penicillin for both of them. Yeah, and I will say any one goes any, in your eyes, one goes in your butt. Any writers watching this now or on our podcast later, uh which shout out to our podcast listeners, thank you guys. Um I do just want to say if, if yes, I, I did make this book in the hopes that I could sell 6 million copies and all my troubles would be over. Unfortunately, it's not that easy, but I'm going to tell you right now, do it. Doesn't matter what potential outcome is going to be, because at the end of the day, when you publish, when you hold that copyright in your hand for the first time, there is no other feeling like that in the world because that is when you know that your legacy is cemented. That is when that really was the moment that I knew I made it. The money that can follow, whether this show blows up or whatever, all that other stuff. And of course, when I do finally get to around to re-recording the audiobook here very soon, uh, once once I don't need my C on anymore, whatever that's going to be, looking like December now. Um, it's fortunately you're recording this statement now when you are poor <laughs> nobody can ever say it's, you didn't say it it's guys it's not about it's not always about the money and i mean i've left jobs because of that because i mean i even got out of the military because the money wasn't enough like it, it doesn't it, it it just doesn't for me it doesn't do anything and and really the only the biggest hurdle you have to do is finish the damn book or screenplay whatever you're writing and just publish it and get it out there if it's not a resounding success do what I'm doing. Try again. Well, what I should be doing. I started writing the second one, but then work schedules changed and I need to get back into that routine. I'm going to finish the second book, guys. Don't worry. It's going to happen. Um, well, on that unlike, note, unlike if, some if you, people. If you've been taking breaks or you're running into roadblocks, who cares? Take take your time yeah. and write your story. I, I've been writing the same game for the last two and a half years. And it's been the most like daunting ordeal ever 
but like today I was able to write like five pages and actually structure a solid design document based off of all of my little sticky notes and journal entries that I've been making for the last two and a half years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Arende, like, Arende writes a in, Arende writes in, it says, don't pull, just don't pull a George R. R. Martin. And, and uh, yeah. So for me, Arende, write my, the end. Yes. Now. And then get there when you get there, but write the end now so we know, so you know and, where well, you're going. And my story does, my three books have a trilogy. Anything else I add on to the Galaxia universe is going to be, just take that as extra credit. But I promise, Anthology. we'll have a complete trilogy that will be its own thing, regardless of if I do prequels, sequels, or totally different stories in the same universe. I, I'm making that commitment now, unless I get hit by a plane tomorrow. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna have a trilogy at least, and that's yeah. that. I can guarantee. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm a little hackneyed. I actually do the what I'm referring to as the Jim Butcher method of writing, where I actually physically take out a big piece of paper and draw a plot arc and put notes on where the where things go. Just so that if I do get hit by a bus tomorrow and something I've written is hell is somehow popular, somebody else has the material that they could finish it yes. off if needed. Absolutely have your outline. Like it doesn't have to be a hundred percent and it doesn't it have to be followed. Right it. But have mm. your beginning and your end and then just figure out the milestones to get to that point. That's how I did it, and that's how I got to where I completed a book. Arende writes in again. Next book may as well be called, or may as well be called Winds of Neverwinter. And yeah, the D and D reference was intentional. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, here's my thing about George. George, I think, is painfully aware that he never has to finish the series. Oh yeah, and because he's under zero pressure to finish the series, realistically, there's no point in him doing it because no matter at this point, no matter what the ending is. It's going to disappoint somebody. And that's all he's going to hear in his own head. So he's almost better off not finishing it. I don't know if it's necessarily the, that last part, because like, I think the biggest issue is the fact that no matter what he puts out, it's better than what already came out. So now it's just like, if I do it, it's fan service and I can take a break and do it when I get to it. Because there was that rush, like when the last book was used for the screenwriting. And he's he's like, yeah, I'm burning through this next book. It will be done in time. And then it came out like season seven. The book, I think, right? He wrote a book that came out during like the season seven release, and then from there, once season seven was going on, it was already downhill. And so by the time he was like, "All right, I got to turn and burn another one," and then he watched the view drop, and he's just like, "Oh, I guess I'll get to it when I get to it." And that's fair too, because like, there's this, like, I think this idea that we have to finish every single thing. Start uh, one sec. A uh, Rendy writes in. In that case, he may as well be honest and outright say he's burned out of writing those books. Instead, he's leaving uh, this audience to dry. And I, I totally hear you. I don't know. I've never met George. I just assume that like that, like this to me plays into that subconscious 
Like he's already, whatever ending he does right is better than season eight because he can always compare it to season eight. Um, well, unless, of course, his actual ending quit. was season eight. <laughs> Which there is that theory out there. Right. Well, that, that yeah, he basically gave him the outline for the book and then and then they took it and built the script. I've, I've heard those theories. It's unconfirmed, but it also hasn't exactly uh, been I denied either. Yeah, and, and this is something I think that like plays into what I'm seeing with A, what he did with Elden Ring, and then B, what he's doing with House of the Dragon, is I feel like he very much is, like you're saying, Corion, he drew the plot line for the whole thing out, and every book he's written has a plot line, but like I'm getting the vibe that he really liked writing House of the Dragon, and now he's really liking being a key component in the production of House of the Dragon because like it's a really spark notes book that is very open for interpretation and okay. now we're watching it be interpreted and it seems like he's putting a ton of effort into a correct interpretation okay so I'm going to put my theory out there okay and I'm I have, I'm going to say for the record, I have zero facts to back this up. I don't yeah, want this, this to, to be, yeah, this is all my personal opinion. Um, you know, take from it what you will, all of that. I personally think that because George found success later in life, as opposed to being a success from a younger point, he suddenly wanted all the toys and fame and power and whatnot that he didn't get previously for his previous works. If Beauty and the Beast had been the level of uh, amazement that we were getting from Game of Thrones, we would have gotten a completed Game of Thrones from George R. R. Martin, but we didn't. And the reason why he doesn't feel any need to is because he's too busy being his version of a successful writer, right? Um, like, uh, take, for example, an, a writer like Nora Roberts, okay? She writes, like, at least four books a year or something crazy like that. She's invested almost all of her money into basically buying a town. She she more or less is, is living the dream of that era of writer, okay? And that genre of writer. I think George is more or less doing the same thing. He's so in love with the trappings that success has given him that he doesn't feel the need to write anymore because he's already got the success he wanted. He's got his million dollars, his movie theater, his train, his all kinds of craziness. He doesn't need right, to I do any more. He bought a train. Yeah, he bought a train. Um, but, you know, know, he also like... He doesn't need to write. I think what if the big thing is like he wrote this one way so that he because he knew this was the only way to get the success and now that he's there he's like working in because he really just seems like a guy who loves fantasy he doesn't necessarily seem to be like the guy that loves writing fantasy he likes no, directing I, I, it and creating it i think he's the guy who likes making money off fantasy personally that's fair that's one of the best things to make money off of, right? Nobody can ever say your product was fake because you go, yeah, it's literally called fantasy. Yeah, like that's the idea, right? Like, you know, I mean, now there are some times where I have commented like, no, that's fake. But anyway, um, 
yeah, like that. That's how I feel about it. Is he's just he's so in love with his own success, but that also he, he doesn't see beyond it. Like, give him a break. Well, if he was a thirty-year-old writer pulling this, I'd be like, "Yo, bro." Well, no, go. look, like, like what seventy? Yeah, no, like, look, he's got his money, he's got his fame, he's got his wealth and power and everything. Like, dude, you can do whatever you want, but here's my problem, okay? And if this you're is where do nothing, fix the book, finish the books. Well, he- here's my issue with it, and I think this is really what it boils down to. I feel as a writer, if you are not doing a one and done story you are effectively creating a contract with the people who have bought the original book that the fine, that the finale is coming. Right. Yeah. The um, are coming. Like, sort of to your word. Like, it's part of your word. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, like you're buying my name. My name comes with the end of the series in video games. We call this an early access story, right? Like we, we would hundred percent. This is early access. A trilogy is effectively on book one, an early access series where you are paying to get the other two parts of the the story to go with it. That's how I view it as like an early version of early access. And, you know, by buying into those first books, we effectively have a gentleman's agreement that we will get a finale to the story. Now, here's the thing. How many times have we ever seen, like, look, you can choose to break a gentleman's agreement. Okay. That doesn't make you a monster. It it doesn't make you a monster. It doesn't make you a liar. It does not make you though. The person like a person that we should be agreeing with further to give them more latitude to put us into this situation again. And that's really what I'm worried about with stuff like house of the dragon with, with the Duncan egg series is that we're only going to get the first third of any story George R. R. Martin sells. Yeah, so... That's my concern. Uh, Arende, adds, Arende adds a good point to all this discussion. Uh, Arende writes in, Look at R.A. Salvatore. The guy writes like a freaking machine because he loves the stories he writes. He has money, but his love of writing never took precedence over the fame and power it brought. And that's kind of the balance I'm hoping for. I don't know if I'll write I'm assuming this guy puts out stories frequently. I'm, I'm not super familiar with the name, but I'm probably familiar with the um, work. So Ari Salvatore writes a lot of the Forgotten Realms books. He's the guy who created Driss Duarden. Um, he's very, very famous in the Dungeons and Dragons novel kind of area. Okay. Well, and, and and yes, that I can't say for sure that I wouldn't do the same thing as George Ermont. So I don't hold a whole lot of contempt or, or judgment towards him, but I do look at him and I go, okay, I'm going to at least deliver one set of three books. And that's, and that's it. I'm, I'm not, you know, that, that's, that's what I'll guarantee. Beyond that, for me, it's probably going to be, uh, endorsing fan fiction stories based on my universe. And then, you know, maybe adding something new or doing something completely different. I haven't quite decided yet. I would like to have more money so I can have more time to put out more books. And that's really the kick in the balls for me is, you know, I've still got to have a job along with this job, along with, you know, trying to make time for everything else is. So I don't have the luxury of buttloads of money. And that's probably the other reason why um, I'm, I'm assuming it's a Mr. Salvatore think you established mr salvatore yes yeah. i'm assuming mr salvatore that's probably part of the reason he's able to crank out so many books is because he's got his financial security and that's what i would like to eventually get to 
but I'm not going to sit here and go, if you guys buy my book, I'm going to, you know, make a bajillion well, different stories because honestly, guys, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to be if I get to that point. I don't. Yeah, I mean, well, personally, I think... well, personally, if I was ever going to write a trilogy or, or build a world that other people would be interested in, I think one of the things I would definitely do is leave a section of the lore intentionally unexplored to allow other writers access to it. For example, um, one of my favorite authors, Larry Niven, uh, wrote a, his known future series, which um, the ring world is a major part of. But one of the things he did is he mentions in the books that humans and another species, the Kazinti, fought a large series of wars. But then what he did was he allowed other writers to tell the stories of those wars, producing anthologies with them. And I think that is a fantastic way to allow your community to add to your universe that you've created. Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why George Lucas was so universally loved despite the prequels was because I think before he even began work on the prequels, he came out and he declared that anything as long as it doesn't mess with his stories would be considered canon. And so, yeah, there's conflicts in the uh, expanded universe, the true canon, as I call it, because Disney Wars is fan fiction mostly, Sam Solo mm -hmm. and Rogue One. Um, so it's that I think is is really that's what I want to do is I want to basically be able to say, you guys want to add to my story? I would like a small cut of that. And as long as you don't mess with my story or if you take my story and put it in its own universe, I'm probably likely going to agree with it. Now, that's, again, that's not a green light endorsement. That's a, we'll see. We'll take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Arendi writes in, same for me. I'm trying to become a full-time bookkeeper, but right now I have a job I have grown to dislike. Oh, thank you for the correction. Uh, but it pays for the financial sinkhole that is starting a beekeeping business. We all got to grind the, the grind, unfortunately. That's our system that we have right now, and I hate it just as much as most anybody else. I think Corion still loathes it, even though he's got all those Canadian hookups. Uh, but it's still yeah, not the oh. utopia that they, they talk about. Well, first, for the record, we prefer the term worker's paradise. But anyway, um, no, honestly, look, uh, I work a, a daytime IT job. I do the YouTube thing, and when I'm not doing any of that, um, I will occasionally be doing weddings. I will be doing funerals. I'm visiting people in hospitals doing the, the priest work that I do. So, I mean, I keep myself busy doing that. But, you know, I, I would love to be able to sit down and write more. I, I You guys have seen some of the work that I, I've produced, the short stories, that I, I feel like it's starting to come together. I'm starting to find a voice. Uh, I consider myself an incredibly young and incredibly naive writer. Same. And, uh, you know, um, I, I guess the only way I can describe it is when the feeling moves me to write, I sit down and I write. And it doesn't matter if I've got a million other things going on in my life. That art has its own spot that everything else gets pushed to the side and I make room to write that even if it's like a paragraph a week, I yeah. take the time to do at least that. My my, my good buddy, he uh, he sometimes pops in on the chat, goes by Rinshar on uh, on the YouTubes. 
Um, he his strategy for me, which I need to get back to. I started this strategy, but I failed again. But it's, it's a long story. I've had I've had a, I've had an acceptable reason, but it's now time to get back into the routine. His thing was never have a day without creative, doing something creative. So it doesn't necessarily matter. Like it doesn't have to be to your specific project. But the goal is to keep that creative mindset going. So whether or not you sit down and do some world building, some story arcing, or something completely different, as long as it's creative and productive, that'll help contribute to your projects. And so for writing a book, for example, my goal is one sentence a day. Now, that doesn't seem like much, right? One sentence a day? Well, that's going to be 365 sentences, right? Wrong. What it but one sentence a day, sometimes I do use it. I go, yep, I'm writing my one sentence and then I'm done. Other days, one sentence becomes two, becomes three, becomes paragraphs, becomes pages, becomes chapters. That's the whole idea is to not put the pressure on yourself to constantly be writing, but to give you an excuse to sit down, to pull up that page, to write your sentence. And then if you feel the inspiration flow from there, let it ride. Or be accomplished in that you did your one sentence for the day. Yeah, it's like a minimum, basically. Right? Like, just the decision that I'm going to do something today to further my art. My biggest thing was getting back into the literal practice of writing. Like, I started realizing the more I just keep paper of any kind nearby which later turned into just always having a journal like the fact that i would write down notes and then and just the whole experience of like like to me it's very much at times the uh charlie from always sunny meme where he's got the thing in the background and there's all these tapes like i had at one point i had my office entirely covered the entire door was entire sticky notes all about the process of my current writing yeah uh like corion don't be afraid to get weird with it no don't and uh corion can you take care of that uh fan mail please oh i uh let me bring it up i don't actually have it up in front of me i was focused on the show there's uh uh hold on hold on here we go um so which one are we looking at here uh by the way, any uh, if any of you come to Montreal, the Laurentians area, I still have 20 plus gallons of honey for sale. Hee <laughs> hee. Well, um, so Montreal is about four hours drive from where I am. How long is that in U.S. units again? Uh, in freedom units? Um, about you're looking, four hours. Oh, yeah, okay, well, it's still you. about four hours of driving, right? But I would say <laughs> that, it's that was, probably... That was the joke, Corion. Yeah, okay. What time is um, that in Spanish again? 12 noon? How many yeah, hours? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I was going to say in free in like freedom units, I think it's um five barbecue sauces five, divided by three bald eagles. Yeah, it's like five, five you know like um, you know 580 bald eagles, right? You know, <laughs> um stretched out, right? But anyway. Um yeah, like honestly, um no, uh Montreal is cool. Um you know, I got in a fair bit of trouble last time I was there because they demanded I spoke, uh, I speak French, oh. and I started replying in German. And uh, <laughs> there's a thing where oh, people get a little. It. You pull the Joel McHale, nice. Yeah, well, when you do that, and the cop goes, "Huh?" or sorry, he goes, "Excuse me," and I respond with, "Ha, got you! I knew you spoke English." 
they tend to get a little upset. But uh Yeah. Alright. Yeah, so there we go. Arendi's like ha 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 in German. Good good discussion uh on writing. Speaking of good writing, we have to continue our Star Trek Deep Space Nine discussion with Babel and uh and uh Captive Pursuit. So uh we're probably going to lead more towards the second episode of this week because I feel it's there's more to get into. But anything you guys want to quickly discuss on Babel real quick before we kind of tear it apart and move on? Well, I mean, O'Brien must suffer. Duh. Right? Uh, you know, the beginning th- this of is O'Brien going to be, must suffer. Yeah, th- this is... Uh, the, O'Brien must suffer the early days. <laughs> we haven't tortured him nearly enough yet. Uh, but don't worry. We'll get there. We will get there. Yeah. Um... And you know what? I, I liked the concept. I liked the idea of this episode a great deal. Yes. I don't know about the execution per se, yes. but I loved the idea of it. I both lo- love and loathe the idea. And I, I think uh, some people have, have, in previous discussions I've been a part of, they really hit the nail on the head with this one. It's a little bit of a, it's definitely not, it's definitely science fantasy. Um, definitely yes. nowhere near science. We cross into the fantasy not only because, first of all, we have a virus that, uh, you know, Bashir doesn't undersell it when he calls it a stroke of genius because it is a stroke of genius. It can affect multiple species in the exact same way, which if you actually study biology, you realize is ridiculous. Um, well, that's, yeah, that's the more fiction part, but the actual the well, symptom of language, that's actually a real thing that military vets are suffering from jpa inhalation wow i didn't actually know that so thanks for bringing that knowledge to the table okay so there is yeah it has something to do with scrambling some gland in your brain that is the thing that takes in yeah and then i don't i've heard that theoretically it can get so bad like that you can't actually say the words you intend to say and you'll just say the wrong word yeah, I mean, uh, I do that all the yeah, time anyway. Major but... connections to JPA. Yeah, it's... Well, you it... shouldn't have been drinking all that JPA then, dude. Yeah. What were you thinking? Oh, oh he wasn't, because he was a million. I was trying to party, dude. <laughs> I like it is. Party. There it is. I don't need brain cells to party. Brands and JPA. Well, let's go let's get go. drunk and stupid. Woo! So, Arendi writes in, uh, Bruce Willis suffers from aphasia. Don't know if it's as bad as it was in the episode of Deep Space Nine. Look, um, my understanding yeah, is Bruce Willis is... That wasn't a fake... I, I thought you were going to say that's a fake disease. No. No, oh, I thought aphasia it, was about losing your hair. Mm, that's no, alopecia. That's, yeah. Ah, yeah. That's right. AKA Jane Smith. Yeah. Sorry, See, well. so I had my diseases mixed up the whole time. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's... Like I said, it's a very interesting concept for an episode, right? Like, how would you operate a station when nobody can communicate? It's literally the Tower of Babel from the from the Christian Bible. It's an interesting concept. the The problem to me was always the execution on it. It felt um, it felt like we're still in that section of Deep Space Number. They're really still trying to figure out their feet. Yeah, and. Um, I mean, Avery Brooks I, has himself figured out, but... Yeah, but I mean, some of the other characters don't quite have it down yet. And this, unfortunately, really puts a, a, a peg on the... They don't quite have all their characters figured out perfectly yet. Um, but it is an interesting idea. And it is a fascinating question of, could you run things 
when nobody can understand anybody. Yeah. Right. And, and how important understanding is overall. Like it, it's a great episode in that regard, but the execution, like I said, just, it leaves a little bit to yeah. be desired. A, a stroke of genius yeah. for this virus is a massive understatement because <laughs> it, it's, it, it affects everybody the same way. Exactly the same. There's no variations. There's no, which in reality, as we know, various viruses do affect people differently based on okay and we're one species so how does that not even all computers get infected the same way by malware yeah and they're all with the same code talking to the same codes not only is it a stroke of genius it's a it's a straight up stroke of well uh, i guess uh not, not, to, not to be blasphemous corion a stroke of magic yeah no i'm i'm down with you man like th- this I... is you know like uh, I believe the term BFM would be appropriate. Black freaking magic. I'm gonna. Uh, right? uh, uh, yeah, so, magic spelled with a C. Yeah, or uh, Arende there, uh, a stroke of Deus Ex. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. No, it, the plot, it, it absolutely is. It's like one of those Ryan George pitch meetings. He's like, "Uh oh, the virus affects all the species. How so? Yeah, so the plot can happen." Yeah, oh, but dude, you know this what? This is uh, one of those Resident Evil plot infections. Yeah, now that all it being just said, the whole plot. It's that not being said. It's not terrible. It's just it's just fantasy. Now, I'm also going to play I'm going to I'm going to be a devil's advocate here and and point out one kind of important thing though to keep in mind. And that is that in the Star Trek universe, all sentients in the Milky Way galaxy supposedly have a common ancestry. That is true. So, it's possible, but you have to get deep in the lore to get there. Again. It's assuming all of the brains have the same gland that aphasia affects. Right. Well, and it's affected in the same way. Exactly. And that's my point Based as well. We, we recently had the virus of unspecified origin, you know, go around, what are we on, like 12,000 12, variant or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the Alpha, Beta, Kappa variant, or whatever name they're the the Megatron it. variant. The, the Megatron. I think at this point, yes, <laughs> because it transforms. That's a good one. Um, point is, even that affected people differently, and we're all the same species. So, but there was even variations in the various subspecies of human that it was affecting differently, and even had its own patterns. So that's really why, having gone through that very recently, it's like, here's this magical virus that's, you know, behaving exactly this. Which makes it even stupider as to why Bashir couldn't find a cure. If it behaves exactly the same, that should, like, you know, give you a 10 million year research lead, you think? Yeah, I mean, now, I'm applying computer logic. But, I mean, like, when you can start removing variables where you can be like, okay... It doesn't uh, differently affect, you know, Bajorans and humans. So what common genetic factors do they all have? Oh, it affects Ferengi too. Okay, what common genetic no, factors are between all Ferengi? Didn't affect the Ferengi. The one didn't group. affect the Ferengi, yeah. Or at least not okay. as quickly. Yeah, but like, In you know what I'm saying the though, Ferengi, right? Ferengi, we get dirty so that we can't get sick. Yeah, there you go. Uh, let's see. Arende writes in, All species on Earth are descended from the same ancestor. A single disease can affect all life forms here. Yeah. Well, that that's basically what we're saying, right? Is, yeah. 
you know, now that being said, like I said, the concept but, is cool. Yeah, it's, it's a not neat a, idea. It's not a nails on the chalkboard, naked now type no, of episode. It was, it's it was way more like a known Hollywood virus trope. trope. Like, yeah, we assume you get infected. You have five to ten hours. And at the end of the episode, the one character that's going to save the day who is determined at the climactic point when the last survivor got sick as well. It, like, that's when the 12 hours is basically up and everybody's yeah. there. And so it's like, like, I don't fault them for any of that, especially spanning it into a 40-minute chunk. And then also, like, I like the setup of it being just an old IED that was just there. Yeah, yeah. I also like, like how Kira, I really like Kira's character in this one because she just, this is basically where we learned the distinction between Federation diplomacy and Bajoran bootstrap to just get the job done. She just takes off at a runabout, kidnaps the guy, and is it's like, she and is just so, drags him back. and she is so sure of her position. She's like, oh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get out of this one because uh, you left a deadly virus on a space station, so or your colleague left the deadly virus on a space station and their lives matter more than yours right now. So yeah. yeah. Uh, now I will say if I was going to rewrite this episode, because you know, we're the writer brothers, we should consider the rewrite. You know, I would have done this as a computer virus that was affecting everybody's universal translators Ooh, and have it, one. and have it really nicely explained that because everybody, because universal translators exist, not everyone have existed for, for so long for, for so long that not everyone like no one bothers to learn other people's languages no one and like even like within the federation like the world you're from may have six or seven different dialects of stuff but the universal translators have compensated for this so well that we just Dude, that can't function so hilarious like uh O'Neill or O'Reilly? O'Brien. 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 O'Brien just really he transferred from the Enterprise. How do you not remember O'Brien? Accent. Yeah, exactly. Like, right. Just, <laughs> like that would be so funny. They They're can't understand him because his accent's thick. That different would be funny. Yeah, like he, he just goes into full Gaelic, right? And like Cisco sounds so Norlands. Yeah. Like, it, it would be ridiculous, and, like, everybody just sounds so off. The and, dude with the sentient orb, just, on, you can only hear him coming through his stomach. It turns out that the translator had even accounted for the muffle. Right, like, all that kind of stuff would be hilarious. Like, it would work out so well, and it's a way to have the episode play out almost identically. Right? Yeah, but yeah, and it probably would, too. Yeah, and I mean, you could even have it that because everybody's got a universal translator basically implanted, that, uh, you know, this is going to affect the, that piece of tech and could cause Something brain injury. the output. It messes yeah. with the output. Yeah, or like it messes with it to add some sort of sonic resonance that's going to build um, up dude, and kill everybody. You don't even have to, like, actually have a device, like shown on screen you could th just say that it's in the vocal cords yeah and the virus is now causing it to like attach to the brainstem of the host and now it's, yeah like that's what's caught like it's leaking some kind of radiation something because it's been jacked up in voltage and that's why the output is no longer working but like the input 
perfectly. So every time like O'Brien speaks, it's this horrible gay look, Gaelic, and like you, I guess it would have to be like. Yeah, like basically O'Brien winds up sounding like the the angry leprechaun on The Simpsons, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, you know, like I mean, it'd just be perfect, right? I mean, and you know, like, and Cisco sounds like, you know, that like guy who works at the chicken joint that's clearly from New Orleans that no one can understand unless they hear it like four or five times. Cajun, hey y'all, man. Yeah, like full hardcore Cajun, right? Like it would be great, and like you know, and then like you have you know Kira being all like you know sounding completely different as well. Some just yeah, exactly right. Like it, you know, it sounds like some sort of angry pterodactyl or something. Like who knows, right? But it would be great. It would have been all been the Bajorans perfect way to do it. English anyway, still anyway. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, well, so it's the Bajoran space station, and they're like technically the median race. Well, no, the yeah. the space station would be talking in Cardassian, right? Like that would be even better, sure. right? Because now oh, even dude, the stations like more issues. All of the like, all of the consoles, yeah, translating and revert, revert back to Cardassian. Yeah. Okay. So then we've got captive pursuit. Uh, yes, uh, a substantial upgrade. Actually, I think one of the best episodes of season one so yeah. far, from what I remember. Which I, I you said just, that about so... every other episode so far. Yeah. Welcome to Deep Space one Nine, the, the best Star Trek. This is <laughs> this is peak Trek. It really is Trek fully realized because it's not it, like I said. The next generation oh, is the sure. utopian dream. It's the idea. It's what we want to strive for. And Cisco tries to be like Picard. He tries to to be the captain of, you know, he tries to be the golden poster boy. He tries to be the better man. This but... show is the reality of that utopian vision. It's the grittiness. Cisco's stationed on the butt crack of Federation space. It, it's it's and he has to manage it. He has to convince a planet to join. He's now a religious figure. And he has to deal with with uh, capitalism, so it's a whole, you know, it's a whole plethora of, of issues that he is he's not, put through. Not not just capitalism, but he has to deal with like reptilian space fascists as well, right? I don't know anything about that. Or are you talking about in this episode? Oh uh, well, I mean, in this episode, he does as well. It's implied but... they might be reptilian fascists. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, I, I was thinking more the Cardassians, well, but oh, sorry, I thought that was a them. Dominion reference. My bad. No, 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 no. You could call them fascists, I think, but more than anything, it just kind of seemed like well, uh, I'm probably tyrannical. I'm probably like going to do a, yeah. I'm probably going to do a video in the near future because the next one I think I want to do another Orville video this weekend. But I I think I'm going to do another one explaining why I believe that the because there's people that like to say that that Trek is a communist utopia and I don't really agree with that and there's other people that say well no it's just a post-scarcity capitalism and I think I figured it out I think Trek is libertarian socialism I think that's the social aspect of it it's a replicator communism like well it, it has to be some form of communism because there I is actually, no material gain outside of prestige and uh, see i don't title. i don't actually think it fits into our current economic thinking at all 
I think that the replicator, at least the concept of the replicator, completely destroys the concept of economy as we know it. Yes. There's no reason to try to apply our standards to it. If Trek was anything close to what we have, I would probably be calling it more of a, um, like a, a, a beyond planetary, like a, a quadrant based democracy where the economy or the macroeconomic factors tend towards socialism. Yeah. But don't necessarily get there. Well, yeah, and they don't have to because there's no republic. Yeah, because it is the, a republic because like, they have the, the prime directive. Thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing with the fact that uh, economically they don't have economy. No, like the whole like economy. Inter- comes hold from on, hold on, and demand. Hold on, they do. Inner federation economy functions very differently from the outside. Now they don't dive into well, in it. Well, in that case, it's an open market. It, it so is. Then it's an intergalactic republic with an open market. Yeah. A regulated. They, they do market. have free trade because they do they have, do it have illegal. Uh, you do have illegal goods. goods and stuff. Yeah. And so, if they have illegal goods, then that means they have to have legal goods. If they have legal goods, that means they have to have regulatory yeah. authorities. There, there's elements of the free market that are definitely a part it, of it, but it is regulated in such a way that, you know, I think in Trek, if you wanted to mass amass material wealth, you could. It's just no one's going to give well, a shit. Um, it's well, like, no, yeah, no, I, think, I could replicate all well, their they, crap you just replicated too. Didn't they do that recently with the gold machine episode? Something with the gold machine. They gave a guy a replicator, and he just made a bunch of money. I don't. Not I remember. think you're getting your shows mixed up. So yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't recall I don't that. Recall one. that ever happening in Star Trek? Because they Might just have been TNG. It's it's well, it's the whole the whole point of the replicator is it creates a post scarcity society, which allows no longer the struggle for the monetary. Although I think personally that this will be a good debate for count for council of shadows Excuse i don't me. think it's so Rogue much council. that there isn't scarcity i think it's Shout out to more my STO in... armada um <laughs> i think it's more in the uh realm of our STO armada yeah the, like it, it's a lot more of a transitory material like like i i don't know exactly if it's been explained how the replicator works but my Converts energy into it, matter. Like they just have the elements of different things, the different matters ready to yeah. go for no, the it, to then just reshape so, the atoms into what it needs to be. So I'm about to go hardcore nerd, but Please here do. we go. According to the Star Trek Next Generation tech manual, um, what they do is they have... So there are two sources of material for the replicator. The first one is any recycled material. So anything that they've broken down into its constituent atoms, they save that material to repurpose into new material. They can also directly translate energy into matter. So more or less, let's say you had like five pounds of gold and you're trying to make a 10 pound gold item. They use what they had and then convert the rest from energy. Well, and then they use the energy that's created by the conversion in and of itself to add to the energy. See, that's so, that, so it's just molecular reconstruction. Which yeah. At that point, that means that like there is a version of scarcity that does exist at scale. 
you have to yeah. always have the transitory material available um but like the the way really i like to think like about it is very little require like it really seems like the uh, machine from back to the future when he's just throwing banana peels and styrofoam cups into the thing and back the to the mr too. fusion yeah mr fusion and if that's the case like to me that makes sense like if all energy or if matter can't be created or destroyed and all matter has energy at some point it control energy yeah and you can uh, manipulate real matter quick, you can manipulate matter real quick john i just want to say obligatory like and subscribe for more. <laughs> yeah so what i what i would actually say is this i think on a microeconomic scale so like the individual scale scarcity effectively doesn't exist on a macro or mm. actually on a gl- on a planetary i would say micro it does unless it you're does. in starfield if you're in starfleet like if you're a member of starfleet it doesn't but like, of the i haven't seen anybody well no like of starfleet because like the poor people and de- like on the space station haven't they're been not federation citizens out. exactly so what i'm talking about is purely inside the federation we we have the smaller scale people like individuals are imposed scarcity but realistically planetary economic systems have to exist yeah like I mean well there's tons of trade like tons of episodes where the enterprise is escorting a different trade vessel to point A and delivering something because it can only it can't be materialized for some reason or another and that that to me makes sense especially like like there's the episode with data when he gets like captured by the super ultra elite in the galaxy and like, like why do you guys care about all this like materialism and they're like what else are we gonna do right i mean like admittedly let's be honest we you and i both know that if we could have our own starships PD would be running around with like a flying pimp mobile, basically, full of all kinds of really cool stuff, right? I mean, I've got several you know, ships from Star Trek Online that I can pull right now. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, you just know he'd have one of those, and he'd be flying around in it, and the inside of it would be like all Persian rugs and craziness, <laughs> right? Like, depends you know. on the ship. I might have different varieties for the different for whatever. Right, I like but flying. I mean, like, but that's cool, right? I mean, like. I guess the way I look at it is I get why they say that like if you can have anything then certain stuff doesn't matter right like if you can have all the toys do you really want all the toys I get that that being said further we go in Deep Space Nine you will see that people for example keep collections of items right Um, even Federation people right because they like them right um you know, just because but, you yeah, could there was have a big thing on that in Lower Decks. Yeah. There's a, a scene about keeping different like trophies from different negotiations, like yeah. gifts that were given during the negotiation. And to me, like, like I think, I like I do think both the realities exist. Like, part of me is like, if I had a home base that I was guaranteed to have forever, hell yeah, I would stock it with memorabilia all day, every day. 
but because I don't have like a guaranteed property right now, I'm more inclined to be like, what's the least amount of stuff I can bring with me on any given move? Same. Yeah. I mean, like, and I'll be honest. With um, a replicator, dude, I... that means nothing. I'm just throwing all of this into the replicator furnace. So then when I get to my next place, I go, all right, get back. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, I can, because I can speak to this a little bit because I have a 3D printer and I love my 3D printer. And there's a point you reach after you've printed like a dozen or, or two dozen things where you're like, yeah, I could dozen. paint it. Yeah, well, still haven't I, reached it yet. I could paint or like I could print a whole bunch of models. I could like print myself a Warhammer army if I chose to. But I've already got enough to paint. I've already got this and that and whatnot. I don't need to do more right now. And I think that kind of logic would hit me too if I had a replicator. I'd be like, yeah, I'll make what I need using a replicator. I'll, I'll probably, and I'll probably make some cool stuff that I like. But there's a certain point where I'd go, this is getting overboard. I think I'd leave it alone. And I think that's a would natural a, human reaction. I would have such a problem with, all right, can I have a burger? All right, now can it be fries? All right, now is it a chocolate shake? All right, now is it a shoe? Ah, All right, ah, now is it a left ah, shoe? And on. just keep changing the items over just, and over and nope, over. No, no. What just you want to do is you want to go use you want to go use the replicator in the hollow deck. That way, after you've eaten the food, you walk out and it's like you never ate it. That's how you eat garbage without it affecting your body. Uh, Arendi writes in, I printed myself a model beehive, <laughs> some D and D terrain. Then I kind of lost interest. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it starts that's... to become a chore. Um, all right, so we do got to move. All right, on to so let's move on to Cap. So yeah, I'm going to read the storyline for this one from uh, the from the, that their IMDb's. Uh, so here we go. <laughs> Deep Space Nine detects an unknown ship coming from the Gamma Quadrant at the other side of the wormhole. The ship has severe engine trouble, and its pilot seems very nervous and reluctant to accept any help. Finally, O'Brien convinces him to come aboard. He introduces himself as Tosk and he apparently comes from a very different culture as he understands nothing of the ways of the Alpha Quadrant. He claims the wormhole caused the ship's problems. O'Brien seems to really like the guy, but senses quickly that he has a secret. He also finds out Tosk lied, discovering his ship has weapon damage. Then Tosk is caught by Odo, trying to open a weapons locker. Just want to get phaser, man! It's cool! <laughs> So, I mean, to me, what this episode is, is it's space fox hunting is what it is, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what it boils. Yeah. Yeah. Like from what, from our perspective, that's what it boils down to. Um, you know, additionally, O'Brien currently gets to cause others to suffer, which <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, uh, adds into my, uh, my general theory on the universe. But honestly, uh, you know, this is really the first refugee we get from the Delta Quadrant. Um, and our first taste in that place is a very, very different version. Like it's a very, very different place than what we're used to in it, in terms of the Alpha Quadrant. It, it, it's got strange, strange new worlds. You know, as opposed to rehashed new worlds. But anyway, <laughs> um, shout out to Strange New Worlds. And do better. Comments. All right, uh, Arendi writes in, or Star Trek's version of Predator. Well, that's a good reference. That's a good reference. Well, I mean, uh, I, I think we're going to get better hunters down the road. It's, but It's a backwards Predator 
because the predator, like Tosk was the prey. He had all the tech of the predator and he was the prey. So that was, I, th I thought it was super awesome to finally see high tech armor. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like I've watched all of Star Trek that I've seen so far, and I've seen one episode where somebody can take a shot to the face and go, stop. Yeah. Ah, that tickles. Don't do it again. Well, I mean, like, I think the the, th the headcanon piece I've gone with is throughout human history, um, if you look at military technology, you can base it on the, the fight between the better weapon and the better armor. And I feel like at some point phasers were like, no, armor is no longer a factor in the equation whatsoever. They, just, they have settings that you can actually specifically vaporize clothing. Yeah, like when when you can get that like ridiculous in terms of firepower, I guess, you know, the fight between armor and weapon has has been decided and weapon won. And I mean, at if this you can point, literally vaporize somebody into and dust no. in one shot, I mean yeah, well, I mean, these guys showed up and were like, well, you know, actually, we found this material that turns out is strong enough to tank it, right? That's the well, interesting yeah. piece, right? But to me, it's, it is it is definitely a very, like, it's fun. Because, like, Stormtroopers, they seemed like they might have some cool armor, and then it turns out they're basically just wearing shoulder pads. <laughs> Their and, armor like, that's, is, that's... is specifically designed to kill them when they're hit with a bolt. It, it fries them on the inside. That was one exactly. theory I read. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I, I mean, even if a well, laser dude, grazes I, by them sometimes, they go, ah, oh, dead. There was this theory that I read that, like, or didn't read. I think it was, I, I want to say it was film theory. And they broke down, like, why the Empire uses TIE fighters and Stormtrooper, like, material and all that Swarm stuff. Swarm tactics. Like, according to the like universe it's the cheapest yeah oh like, yeah it is the, like they're not even paying for fully off like so full visuals in their pilots like their cockpits can't see around the wings and they don't care like they're only blitzkrieg and so everything is the cheapest so then if it was found out that the cheapest item also fried you from the inside out oh well it was the cheapest and you're the cheapest body we could get to fill it yeah <laughs> like uh, Arendi, it all in lines with the lore Arendi writes it it says and the federation co never copied that armor an armor that can withstand a phaser blast uh the other point is too Arendi, and i don't know how recently you watched the episode or if you've been watching along with us um but they actually specifically say during the fight scene cisco tells them to increase to setting six so I think that that's kind of to explain that, again, the reason the Federation doesn't bother with armor is because their weapons can just vaporize it at the highest setting. So we mm -hmm. have a lot of good themes in this episode. Was that Robert Frost? What? Anyway. No. So getting back to it. Yeah, there are a lot of good themes in this episode. Um, you know, specifically, I think there there's a lot of discussion about hunting for sport uh i think in there i think there's a lot of discussion about how much you should be welcoming of 
outsiders and outside ideals. I think that's definitely yeah. something that gets covered too. Well, and that's just it. It it we we think it's hunting for sport from our perspective, our limited perspective on their culture. And for all we know, it's it could literally just be the building blocks of their society. And there's a lot more to it. That, like that's what they seem to allude to. Like this right. wasn't this wasn't you know the founder of Jimmy John's going and shooting up you know a bunch of endangered species in Africa. This is like. This is this is their culture. This is their custom. Yeah. This is like to us it seems foreign well, and stupid, but to them it, it could be their foundation. It, was, it could literally well, be the they, reason that they don't nuke each other to them. Well, yeah. no, they said it that like the Tosk culture is to be Tosk. And this other culture's culture is to honor Tosk by hunting Tosk. Like there was even though it was only like piecemealed in conversation but they took a lot of time to explain that like this isn't just a simple predator prey no i mean i'm not going on being hunted by romulan like it was really awesome no no and like please don't don't misunderstand i am not saying that hunting for sport is in any way not something that can't be done or is, is immoral or anything like that absolutely this is a this is a uh, a species that yeah this is their culture right like you know americans and hand egg right or canadians and hockey it's part of the culture it's ingrained it's yeah. how it is and you know it, it's not necessarily a bad thing but i do think this episode forces us to look at this yeah. and look at you know it, what if you were in a situation where, you know, like this kind of really out of control, elaborate game of tag was part of the culture? Yeah. And, and oh, go for it. Uh, Rende writes in, I think I haven't watched DS9 since it originally aired. Maybe gave the series once a few years later. I have a pretty good memory, but it's not perfect in some episodes, I remember. So, Rande, uh, I'm actually going to start trying to post regular on social media, uh, both uh, Twitter and Facebook's. I'm going to be trying to get reminders of the episodes. I've been meaning to do it. The whole point of a community to watch through is to remind people, hey, next week we're going to be watching this and this. Please feel free to join us. Um, actually, next week, I can go ahead and plug it right quick, is uh, we're going to be doing a special one. We'll explain it the day of, but this next week's going to be the, uh, the the musical Sound of Music and then uh, Deep Space Nine. We're doing two episodes a week, and I think that's what we're just going to stick with at this point, guys, because that's making a lot of sense. Next week's two episodes of DS9 are going to be Q-less and Dex. Oh, boy. Oh, we got a good one next week. Oh, already. boy. We got a good show between both those episodes. Oh, it's going to be good. Oh, so, boy. And then, uh, yeah, so next week, if you want to get caught up to us then, I mean, you're not too far behind. Oh, man. Yes, Serende, it's that episode. Yep. That's all I'm going to say from that comment. That's going away. Um, <laughs> no hard feelings, buddy. It's just someone has a... Or wait, John, did you watch Q-List already? I want to say I watched both of them. Watch them again. Um, okay. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. it's Yeah, we're, we're getting into some of the, the better... 
uh, plot threads that Deep Space Nine I, you know, I tries think, to clear up. I'm getting to the point where I think while season one and two do have some some bummers in them that I remember, although I don't know about season two now, I, I'm going to have to see. Season two is going to be our full, first full season of 24 episodes. <laughs> so that's going to that's going to take 12 weeks. Jeez. Um, we'll get it. We'll oh get yeah, it. absolutely. We're here to do this and have fun, but. Um, I'm realizing I think the only reason season one and two kind of get a bad rap is because once three hits, it's game on. And uh, yeah, yeah. Once the Defiant shows up. Yeah. Well, I mean, once we get the the primary motivator for all the seasons to come. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I freaking love this show. But Captive Pursuit. I think does a really good job of pointing out the fact that, that I mean, Cisco does everything right in this episode. And I think, and so does O'Brien. Um, it's, it's about, it's, it's definitely a super relevant lesson for today's current climate and culture that when, just because you might disagree with somebody else's culture on a personal level, it doesn't mean you're right. And it's not about, trying to force your ideals you know cisco the prime directive is something that i think we all should consider adopting for personal ideology now i'm not saying you have to obviously i'm i'm 100 Mm percent against trying to control people however i would encourage someone to actually think of what general order one says and and to really consider following it because it means you know non-interference do not interfere and i think that's a very high point to take in life because it it allows uh, it allows for the opportunity to bring the cultures together. It allows for the opportunity to find some common ground. And obviously, O'Brien and Tosk were able to get along to a certain point. And in the end, while O'Brien realized, okay, not only is there nothing I can do, the fact that Tosk didn't want to seek asylum was a pivotal moment because then O'Brien realized, okay. He's not going to accept Federation idealism. It's now time for me to take that Federation idealism and take the higher step and respect his ideal and fulfill his purpose. And in the end, he ends up giving them what they wanted and, and what yeah. the uh, what the hunters wanted. And I think that is a huge lesson that a lot of people, especially myself, but you know, I'm not perfect. I'm getting a little bit better each day, but I definitely noticed that, oh, well, you do that in your life? Well, that just makes you less than me, right? No. I might not agree with certain people's lifestyles, and they might not agree with mine and my beliefs, and that's okay. Yeah. I don't need to agree with you. Just respect my right to exist and have ideas, and I'll respect yours. And don't yeah, come I mean, into my house and tell me where to shit. Yeah, I mean, that, that basically, uh, I, I think, is... You know, something that we can all kind of learn from in terms of the Prime Directive is, you know, the, the, there's a lot of ethical and mor- moral pieces of it where you sit there and go, you know, I really should try to interfere here because it potentially saves lives and I care about that and all that. And yes, those kind of moral quandaries are interesting. But at the end of the day, look, when it comes to fundamental day to day stuff, right? One of the things that we're actually concerned about as a species, you know, in terms of as a species, when running into an alien species, if they're an advanced culture, it could very easily, if not wipe us out militarily or, or 
you know, economically or anything like that, it could just wipe us out as a society, as a unique culture, because they just have a culture that we get obsessed with and get subsumed into. Right. And the the way I look at the Prime Directive is it's an attempt to prevent that from happening, to allow people to continue to be the their unique culture and share their cultural uniqueness with everyone else because a broader cultural base at the end of the day is able to weather storms easier than a monoculture. Right. Um, and I think that's an important lesson to take away. I think it's an important lesson for us as human beings to take away. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean, Hey, we don't help when there's a problem, but we have to look at how that other person would like the help and how we offer the help, I think is most important, more important than anything else. Right. And that they know to, to ask for that help and that we're available for it. And, and and I think the more important thing to say, well, maybe not more important, but I think what's, what is equally as important if, if not more so is you have to respect people's right to refuse your help. And for some people, because they feel like they've been created specifically to help people, that can be a very hard one to accept because you, you know, they take that as a personal offense. They're like, oh, you're rejecting my help. That means you're rejecting me. That means you're just a slap in the face to my deal. No, no, that's not it at all. It's, well, okay, maybe it depends on the person in that situation. They might just see you as the opportunist that you might be or that you might come off as and might not want to give you the satisfaction. And that's, but you have to realize that's someone's own personal problem at that point. Yes, I'm definitely one that will try to help people i'm in no position to being dfp all the time but i'm still gonna do what i can with what little i have um however i'm not gonna force the issue at the same time that's not right either because if someone doesn't want my help okay i at least i can at least go to bed at night knowing i offered you said no and then you died all right yeah you 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 gave it a try and I also have to respect your decision. Mm-hmm. And and I will say this, um, you know, just because you may not have the, the monetary capability to help somebody doesn't mean that you don't uh, right. sacrifice your time for them or sacrifice your knowledge for them. There are a lot of ways to help somebody that don't necessarily involve dollar bills. That all being said, yeah, I mean, people have the right to absolutely say, no, look, I've got this. I, I'm going to handle it my way. And you know yeah. what? That's fine, too. Right. I, I think the, the best thing we can all do is not only respect people's rights to do this, that and the other thing, but the right to also just be a, you know, a, a hard nosed, iron willed, stubborn human being. And go, okay, well, you can choose to do that. I I made the offer to try to help. If you don't need it or don't want it, that's okay. That, that being said, I mean, I always appreciate it when other people reach out to me to offer me help. I always find oh, it yeah. incredibly touching. Sometimes it's um, even just that thought. Like, I might not take take it, yeah. but at this, the fact that you give a shit really does make a difference. Yeah, and I'm also going to say this, and I, I I personally feel like this is being lost in the modern age. It's the understanding that being polite while not necessary is the social lubricant that prevents people from grinding their gears on each other. Okay? I'd have to agree. Right? I mean, even if you're like, 
look, I shouldn't have to be nice to you. Okay, fine. But you don't have to be. But if you want to get, if you want to be able to get along with people, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of respect goes an awful long way. Right? Look at this if, show. If you make, yeah. if you make being polite and being nice your default, it's a lot harder to realize who you have to be mean to. Because like most people stop beefing with you. Most people get out of your way. Mm-hmm. Arendi writes in, what makes it even harder not to help people is when you're used to run multiple scenarios in your head, got a decent idea what could bring the best result, got refused, and see the other face plant. Yeah, but yeah. Since that's... Like that's but you a shouldn't, being you shouldn't take that, that you shouldn't take that attention. to yeah you shouldn't take that to sleep with you. Well, so, I, yeah, I'm I, going to I'm going to bring out a line that that comes from Stargate, um, that I feel like is probably the way that I deal with it uh, when stuff like that happens, and that is, the very young do not always do as they are told. <laughs> and you know what? That works on many different levels. Sometimes, sometimes to learn fire's hot, you gotta get burned. That's, that's it. Some people gotta learn the hard there's, way, and yeah, it sucks, but... Well, there's know. this there's this idea, uh, tangent a little bit, but I had a friend that they got scared while they were at work, and then they got home, and they were fine. And they were, like, dealing with it and struggling. Like, why, why am I, like, did I do everything right or anything like that? And I was like, well, your goal was to get home you didn't think you were going to for whatever reason you didn't think you were going to and now you're home you did everything right and in the case of Arendi like you knew what could happen you told the friend what could happen and you were right because they didn't listen Mm -hmm. you're still right like it like don't take that to stroke your ego but do take that to stroke your understanding your experience like everything you thought could happen did happen well check that one off the book like now you know that if you see these events playing out in your own life or in another friend's life you now have uh evidence to a support that b you knew it then you know it now and here's the person that didn't listen then so don't follow in their footsteps and again if that person goes and falls again you go well now i have two people you just Mm -hmm. add to your repertoire of experience you're not you're not a bad person because somebody rejected your help and you're definitely not a bad person if you offered the solution that they then rejected like you went as far as anybody could have asked you to go that's it now arguably beyond since we're running down the clock here there is one more very important piece of uh of news we do have to cover and that of course being the passing of louise fletcher um, you will get to meet her as Kai Wynn, and I do apologize. I will be a little light. I will. There will be light spoiling of Deep Space Nine, but no worries. Uh, Louise Fletcher. Um, she was the original actress who played Nurse Ratchet in One Flew, uh, Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She won an Academy Award for Best Actress, a BAFTA Award, and a, Glo- a Golden Globe. Um, she's been in Picket Fences, Joan of Arcadia, uh, Girl Bosses, and of course, she plays the religious leader, Kai Wynn, in Deep Space Nine. 
or as we all lovingly refer to her as, Space Karen. Now, in real life, um, Louise is known far and wide through the community of being absolutely a wonderful, charming, and caring human being that would go out of her way to talk to any fan about anything ever and was just on record as being one of the sweetest actresses ever to live. So, gentlemen, if I could get you to raise your your glass to one of the greats, a woman who managed to so, so perfectly play the woman we love to hate, Miss Louise Fletcher. Have a wonderful passing. And yes, um, she has done all kinds of stuff. Um, American from Alabama, you know, not exactly who you would expect to be the the kind of actress that she turned into. She I started mean, life with very I mean, different ambitions. I mean, being an, an arrogant religious leader in a, in a Star Trek show was that, that she was already, you know, born in the area for that. So. Mm hmm. <laughs> It came from the Bible Belt. Just a, just a little religious joke, guys. Yeah. It's okay. How we treat deaths, how we... This is, of course, how we treat life. Treat life, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, there... But, yeah, she, she was involved in a lot of acting. She didn't really start out with that in mind uh, initially, right? Um, she, you know, but got into it and got, got quite deep in. Um, she's got... Uh, she has two sons... Um, she actually took time off of being an actress to raise them. So, I mean, you know, she she did what she felt was right by her family and by her career. Um, she actually received an honorary degree uh, from Gallumet, uh University. So she's, you know, honestly, she's done a lot in her life. Um, I did not get the chance to meet her personally. Um, but she was at a couple of conventions that I attended over the years. Um, and no one had anything negative to say about her. It's, it's a hard thing really when you think about it to play somebody like to play the bad guy, to play the individual that everyone despises. But I feel like it really truly speaks to an actor's capability to generate that much, you know, consternation in the fan base and yet still be a really decent, really wonderful human being when not wearing the costume. And I think that speaks highly to the kind of person she was. And you know, uh, 86 is a, that's a good run, man. 88 or 88. 88 is a good run, right? I mean, you know, I intend to live forever, but for regular mortal humans, uh, who, you know, don't intend to suck the life out of anyone that they can possibly grab. Um, you know, th that's a really good run. And a classy lady, um, worthy of respect right up until the, right up until the end. Yeah. So. And, and and here's the other two thing too, guys. Like, she is an, she's an Oscar winning award, uh, Oscar award winning actress. There we go. Mm -hmm. a, a little bit of babble must have kicked in. Um, and... This was she got an Oscar back when it still mattered. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah. I personally find the award shows these days to be entirely nonsense. But back in the day, 
uh, when they seemed more honest, at least. She she won an, she was an Academy Award winner, and then she did Star Trek. And she is actually on record as saying that Star Trek was one of the was one of the high points of her life and career. She was so glad to have done it. She still got fan mail years after the fact from people who were like, "Oh man, I loved hating you so much." And she she you know sadly unlike Shatner, she just dove into the fandom and absolutely was proud of what she did and uh, uh rende writes in i intend to live for as long as i want to forever has some unpleasant consequences the universe's heat death for starters yeah well i mean i i think uh beyond mortality there's more but uh that's discussion for the rogue council um yes in the meantime Yes, she definitely lived a full and incomplete life. My end goal is 80, and then the bonus years beyond that are, uh, you know, are, are what I'll be grateful to have. And so she, she definitely did. She lived a full life, and she raised children, and she was uh, a well-known actress, a, you know, Oscar-winning actress, who then also was in the best Star Trek series ever. I mean, what? And she really helped make the series. The Absolutely, best series ever. I, I talked. Someone on Twitter mentioned that she was only in fourteen episodes. I never knew that until that until I read that, and I was like, "That is incredible!" Because for fourteen episodes, those fourteen episodes, you take her out, and DS Nine loses some of its quality. That is yeah. how much of an impact this character has. And I like, I felt like she was there for more than fourteen. I could have sworn she was there every other week. <laughs> like oh. well i mean isn't that what makes an amazing space karen is like y- you're always worried she's gonna show up even where she really really doesn't belong yeah and and i don't want to dive too much into Bro, the character. that makes her extremely a space karen because like talk to anybody who deals with karens yeah and then they're like like it sounds like it's every single day yep Yep. But in reality, it was probably like once a month or once every two months. Once a yep. year, but it feels like every day. Yeah, Arende but says... it's enough not... to just ruin all the other work days. Yep, Arende says not just some, a lot of its quality. I totally agree. Like, yeah. she she really... Did... And that's the thing, like, like, she absolutely deserved her name in the credits, not just as a guest star. I think also Aaron Eisenberg and, and pretty much... That's what I love oh, about yeah. DS9. All the supporting cast... Guys, they're not just supporting cast. You take one pillar. You take Eisenberg out. You take uh, Grodencheck or Louise Fletcher out. Yes, or even or, or, or of course Coombs. Like, the definition of or, a support beam. Yeah. Yeah. No. The the, 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 the word the, the, no. it's the literal definition of the word support applies to the DS9 supporting cast. Yeah, it's like load bearing supporting cast. Load bearing cast. Yes, that's exactly yeah. what I agree. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, they're I, not... I think that I think that's the best term be I've called ever called the heavy for. hitters or like the one hit wonders for anybody that only did one episode and crushed it. Like just start referring to them like songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one album artist. Yeah. Yeah. Now they uh now she she's fantastic and yeah, she's definitely one that I would have would that I really wanted to meet because she she totally she didn't feel bad about any of of you know some of the even some of the fan hate mail she thought was entertaining 
and she got it at the time. Thankfully, that was a short-lived for her because in the long run, all she got after that, at least from what she says, was uh, was she would still get fan letters about how people, oh, I love your performance. You're so great. I love hating you. And she, yeah. she, she just took it like it. She, she really was that type. Of, she felt genuine. That's what I'm trying to say. She yeah. felt genuine. I would have loved to have met her and, and had a chance to, to sit down and have, you know, some 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 coffee or whatever. I think she lived in France. Uh, yes. She moved on from this world. So, yeah, so maybe a French croissant or something and some <laughs> Earl Grey tea. Uh, there you go. That would have to be the way. Uh, that's that's how you do it. But See, I don't know. I feel like if I was going to be there, I'd want to share a glass of spring wine. But the good stuff, the kind that they don't serve to humans. Or a, yeah, or or a morning mimosa. I don't think they do those go. there. I don't know if that's where they came from, but uh, I know here in America we love them. Um, yeah, she she was definitely one of the better uh, Hollywood actors. That you know, she just you could tell by her life and accomplishments. She wasn't out there for the fame as much as just doing the the, the job. And she clearly, she was clearly. A, uh, I can't think if there's a word for this. She's definitely one of the actresses that did the job because she enjoyed it. She enjoyed not the because job, of the she paycheck, also loved right? the fans. Like, she also loved yeah. entertaining the fans. And yeah. that's tremendous. Like, that's the one thing that I can't state. Like, I don't have, I'm not saying that someone's a bad actor she's, if they only go to their job. If that's how you are, I'll respect that. But just know, I'm not going to go mm-hmm. out of my way to want to meet you. Both. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, like, a, like a stage comedian. Like somebody that actually goes down and meets their fans, meets the group, but then also is not that same person when they're doing their job. Yeah. They're who they need to be for the scene. Yeah. So I think that's no. really cool. Yeah. And a true artist. Yeah. And, you know, earned respect of her actions. And that to me is a huge thing, right? You know, um, you know, and as time goes on, we just, you know, you see the, the quality of her acting just dramatically improve from season to season, even though it's only like 14 episodes. Right. Um, I mean, we even see that with a couple of the other, you know, uh, actors in the series, like, you know, Isaacs was same kind of way. He just got better with time, right? Um, you know, granted, I mean, like, Coombs is playing, what, like, half the background characters at one point or another. And, you know, he's there too. Like, there isn't a... I am very, very impressed with the quality of the team that came together to produce Deep Space Nine. And... Yeah, load-bearing actors, I guess, is the best way to explain it, because...